This is Guns and Butter. And it's interesting to note that they're not killing, they're not killing civilians in a in a sporadic fashion. They they're killing civilians in universities, schools, hospitals. Uh, you know, these are the areas which are being are being targeted. They're targeting they're targeting the institutions of civil society. They're they're destroying the institutional base, the resources, and the people. And that is the way in which you destroy a country. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Invasion of Gaza. Michel Chosodovsky is a professor of economics and director of the Center for Research on Globalization. The Center for Research on Globalization is an independent research and media group of writers, scholars, and activists. Based in Montreal, the Global Research website at www. .globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis on a broad range of issues focusing on social, economic, strategic, geopolitical, and environmental processes. Chosodovsky is the author of The Globalization of Poverty, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. Today we focus on two of his most recent articles, The Invasion of Gaza, Operation Cast Lead, Part of a Broader Israeli Military Intelligence Agenda, and War and Natural Gas, The Israeli Invasion and Gaza's Offshore Gas Fields. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome. It's a pleasure to be on the program. Michel, you've written a new article on Israel-Palestine, the Invasion of Gaza, Operation Cast Lead, part of a broader Israeli military intelligence agenda. When did Israel begin to plan for the operation they call Operation Cast Lead? Well, in fact, um, this operation is part of a much broader operation which was uh, initiated in 2001. It was, uh, in fact, a project of Ariel Sharon and his um, national security advisor, Mayor Dagan, who actually now has become the director of Israeli intelligence, Mossad. Um, essentially, that earlier plan in 2001 was entitled Operation Justified Vengeance. It, it was uh, formulated during the election campaign in the year 2000. And um, when uh, Ariel Sharon became prime minister, uh, it was presented to the Israeli cabinet uh, as a plan, uh, essentially a plan of um, destabilization as well as invasion of the Palestinian territories uh, using the pretext of civilian deaths to undertake major military operations, so that the suicide bombings were, in fact, they were, in fact, expected, 
and military operations were timed to coincide with those suicide bombings so that civilian casualties on both the Israeli and the Palestinian side were there to justify a process of escalation. So that we had this operation. The operation actually was called Justified Vengeance. So it was retaliation, uh, but in effect, it was uh, a plan which consisted essentially in in destroying the, the the whole foundations of the Palestinian Authority, its military and uh, security capabilities, its institutions, um, and one aspect of this plan. As I said, it was also called the Dagan Plan, named after Mayor Dagan was the the idea that the West Bank and Gaza would be virtually cut off from one another. Um, It was called in in one um, report, it was described as cantonization. In other words, well, essentially balkanization of the two major Palestinian territories to the extent that they wouldn't be able to to have an integrated uh, political and institutional apparatus. They'd be cut off. They would also, of course, create conditions where they couldn't communicate between these two territories. And uh, uh, if we look at, at the rhetoric behind this, uh, this plan, because it, was, it, it wasn't extensively reported, but it was covered by, by Jane, which is the major military uh, analysis magazine uh, based in Britain and, and various other Israeli reports. But if we look at what's happening now, uh, we can see very clearly the relationship. Uh, for instance, at the outset of this document, 2001 document, it states that, um, that the Dagan plan calls for, quote, an invasion of Palestinian-controlled territory by some 30,000 Israeli soldiers with the clearly defined mission of destroying the infrastructure of the Palestinian leadership and collecting weaponry currently possessed by the various Palestinian forces and expelling or killing its military leadership. That is a quote uh, from a review of this military operation, Operation Justified Vengeance, which was published in 2001, so that we we can see that, that in fact, we're not dealing with something which is a short-term occurrence. It's part of a broader plan. I view it as a plan which uh, very specifically and deliberately is geared towards the expulsion of Palestinians, the exodus or or the deportation of, of tens of thousands of people, where uh, life is made virtually impossible through the destruction of, of schools, workplaces, hospitals, and then this will eventually encourage people to emigrate and will weaken their resistance to, to uh, Israeli uh, attacks. Now, this uh, plan that you're referring to of Ariel Sharon that dates back to 2001, Tanya Reinhardt wrote of this, didn't she? And, and then she died unexpectedly after leaving Israel? Um, well, that's correct. Uh, Tanya Reinhardt was one of the major um, analysts of these various uh, operations. I mean, she had a tremendous uh, 
understanding of, of the whole historical process. And when I, I wrote this article, I based it in part on some of, of her earlier writings uh, because she she was familiar with this operation and she was familiar with the whole sequence of operations. Um, the important thing here is to understand that there were several stages and the, the interlock stages. Uh, first of all, uh, there was the question of the assassination of Yasser Arafat. That was in November 2004. Okay? Well, that's right. I mean, that was actually stated almost publicly, wasn't it, that they, that was the Israeli intent to assassinate Arafat. Absolutely, it was. It was. Um, uh, it it was a a project of the Israeli cabinet. They don't they they don't even deny the fact that that this assassination was planned well in advance. Tanya Reinhardt reviews it. Um, the assassination was in 2004, but in fact, um, going back even to the 90s, there was a, there was a secret plan to assassinate uh, Yasser Arafat. But what I think is revealing is that in 2003, uh, the Israeli cabinet stated quite openly that their objective was to assassinate uh, Yasser Arafat. And we then recall that there was a United Nations Security Council resolution condemning the Israeli cabinet decision to assassinate Yasser Arafat uh, which was opposed by the, which was in fact vetoed by the United States. Okay, uh, and uh, I mean, it's uh, you know, the United Nations stands up for uh, you know fundamental international law and human rights and condemns the uh, decision of a foreign government to assassinate Yasser Arafat. Namely, the Israeli government decides quite openly that they're going to kill him. And then the United States says, "No, we veto that that um, you know that resolution which condemns political assassination." It, it should come as no surprise because the United States also has a policy of political assassinations. So, um, but we recall that when Arafat died the following year in 2004, um, nobody really remembered. Uh, in our distinguished mainstream media, that the order had been given to assassinate him, and they then concocted various explanations of 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 uh, of his death. I mean, there was some some discussion of the assassination, but it was not uh, carried through in any meaningful way by uh, by the mainstream media, and nobody really seemed to be concerned as to who had actually ordered the assassination of, of Yasser Arafat. I suspect that this was an order emanating from, of course, from the government, and it was carried out by, the, by Israeli intelligence, and, which at that time was headed by Mayor Dagan. Um, so there we have it. I, I think there are several events which are very important in analyzing uh, Gaza. One is of course the the assassination of of Arafat. Michelle, before you go on to the other points, why, in your opinion, did the Israelis want to remove Arafat? 
Well, that's precisely what I want to focus on. Um, Yasser Arafat was essentially, uh, he was, I mean, he was a tremendously popular figure, okay? Um, he, he was ambiguous in his positions and so on, but he had popular support, and um, I think it was understood that if Yasser Arafat were to be uh, assassinated, uh, the Palestinian authority and the Palestinian movement would would uh, become increasingly divided, and that's exactly what happened. Once Arafat had been had been assassinated, they then appointed their own proxy, which was Mahmoud Abbas, to succeed Arafat. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas, it's well known, is a is an instrument of both Israel and and the United States. Yasser Arafat up to a point, was also manipulated by, by the United States. But again, he was, uh, he was a, an important figure in the whole struggle and, and background. But in any event, this assassination, I think, served to, uh, to initiate the process of destabilization of the Palestinian Authority, because on, on the one hand, it, it led to divisions within the movement, and secondly, it led to the election victory of Hamas in 2006, which would not have been uh, possible had Arafat been around. I believe that that was part of it, is that um, the assassination of Arafat led the way, set the stage for the victory of Hamas. And I, I firmly believe that this victory of Hamas was something which also had been had been foreseen and in a sense planned by uh, by Israel. We we must remember that Hamas, going back to its beginnings, was actually supported covertly by Israel because they saw uh, in Hamas the possibility of of undermining the civilian secular administration, so that Hamas was supported by funds from Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, and um, Israel was also supporting the movement covertly, um, with a view to weakening Fatah and the Palestinian Authority. I think that they foresaw the outcome of this election, and the fact that the election would provide the opportunity to ultimately destabilize the Palestinian Authority altogether, destroy the political fabric of Palestine, and they would then, of course, use the pretext of the Hamas government, uh, allegedly an Islamic terrorist organization, to virtually pursue the subsequent stages in this Operation Justified Vengeance. I'm speaking with economist and author Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Invasion of Gaza. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So that I believe that the election of Hamas was something which was, in essence, was staged because it, it took place uh, following the the death of Arafat, 
and the creation of divisions within the Fatah movement. And uh, it also occurred, and that's very important, it occurred after the evacuation also of Jewish settlements in Gaza. Now, that was also a very important uh, occurrence, and it was also misunderstood by virtually everybody. When uh, in, um, in 2005, um, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon ordered uh, the removal of all Jewish settlements inside Gaza, and we're talking about a population of over 7,000. And this population was relocated. Now, um, Sharon was not, he was not doing this to uh, please the Palestinians. Uh, in fact, uh, the Palestinians uh, said, oh, this is a great victory for us. Now we, we control our lands. And then Washington was, was saying, well, this is part of the roadmap to peace. But in effect, what it really was, it was it was part of the project of the Israeli government to create a concentration camp, a barricaded prison territory in the Gaza Strip, which would not have been possible had there been uh, Jewish settlers inside uh, the Gaza Strip. So, in effect... That um, removal on the orders of Prime Minister Ariel Sharon of all Jewish settlements in, in Gaza was part of a plan to ultimately barricade Gaza, transform it into a concentration camp. Some people have made the analogy between Gaza and the Warsaw Ghetto, and there certainly is an analogy to be made, because essentially you're enclosing people, you're not letting them go out, and then you, you start to starve them to death, you block the supplies of food and medical assistance and so on, and that is precisely what they're doing now. They have um, made life virtually impossible for, for the Gazan population. They're killing men, women, and children, and this would not have been, as I say, possible had there been 7,000 Jewish settlers inside the Gazan territory. Well, right. And also, uh, the removal of the Jewish settlements in Gaza under Sharon in 2005, that uh, had to be a prelude to an attack on Gaza. They could hardly attack Gaza if there were Jewish settlements there, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. This operation would not have been possible had they not removed those settlements. And the political fabric of Palestine would not have been the same had Yasser Arafat still been around. So that the objective of Operation Justified Vengeance was essentially to to transform to transform Palestine into territories without any kind of political authority, destroy its institutions and uh, as far as Gaza is concerned, to transform Gaza into a prison which is barricaded by the Israeli, you know, the Israeli security guards, and virtually, virtually it's a barricaded prison territory. So I think that was definitely 
that was definitely part of, of that plan, uh, Operation Justified Vengeance. Well, Michelle, with regard to what's happening right now, Operation Cast-Led, and this is the attack on Gaza, wasn't this exactly when Israel was beginning to negotiate a ceasefire agreement with Hamas that uh, the plans for the present operation uh, were made? Well, precisely. The Operation Cast-Led was planned essentially in I would say around June of last year, in other words, June 2008. And that was precisely at the time when they had uh, reached uh, a ceasefire agreement with Hamas. Now, um, I think there are two things which are important. One is the fact that they actually planned this operation very carefully uh, at the outset of a ceasefire arrangement, so obviously they had the the subsequent objective to to violate that ceasefire in the form of a major military operation. But um, as we we read in the mainstream media, the Katyushka rocket attacks on Israel by Hamas have always been used as the pretext to justify this uh, military operation. But in fact, there were no rocket attacks by Hamas until Israel broke the ceasefire on November 4th, 2008, the very same day we had U.S. presidential elections. And of course, everybody had their eyes somewhere else. So that on that same day, um, Israel breaks the ceasefire. They chose their day. And they killed quite a number of, of Hamas militants, allegedly because they were building a tunnel. And so the ceasefire was broken. And the ceasefire was broken quite deliberately by, uh, by Israel. And, and this is now acknowledged, but at the same time, I say it's acknowledged by the mainstream media because they they never mentioned it initially, but then they've dismissed it. They're saying, well, Hamas are digging tunnels, so we had the right to go in and bomb them. But it's, it's also important to mention that on November the 5th, uh, one day after they broke the ceasefire, they launched a, a siege of Gaza, cutting off food, fuel, medical supplies. Um, and so if anybody wants to really analyze who broke the ceasefire? Obviously, Israel broke the ceasefire, and they had planned to break the ceasefire, and they had planned to break the ceasefire on November 4th, um, at the very moment the United States was voting for a new president. And so um, that operation, cast led, is part of, of the broader operation of uh, destroying Palestine. Uh, Eventually, I think that they want to expulse the Palestinians. Whether that will occur, that's another matter, because, again, the Palestinians have been struggling for their lands for, for, you know, for more than half a century. And and I I think that they have a tremendous uh, courage and and resilience and capacity to to, uh, fight for their rights. 
But I think the long-term plan by Israel is expulsion. Uh, and uh, that territory, Gaza, uh, is very important to them because um, it has um, very significant offshore gas reserves. In other words, they are they're offshore gas fields which um, represent billions of dollars of of revenue, uh, the sovereignty over those gas fields belongs to Palestine. I mean, the gas fields belong to Palestine. In other words, it's within their jurisdiction. And I think that Israel essentially wants to take over those, um, those gas fields, which are off the coast of Gaza. Well, you've written another article that I should mention on uh, the Israel-Palestine situation called War and Natural Gas, the Israeli Invasion and Gaza's Offshore Gas Fields. Um, Now, these gas fields were discovered in 2000, isn't that right? Yes, the actual, well, there were probably, prior to 2000, there was exploration and so on, but the actual discovery was was in 2000. It was a it was a project uh, of the Palestinian Authority at the time under Yasser Arafat, and uh, there was an agreement with with British Gas, which is a very large company. It's now called the BG Group, the British Gas Group. So British Gas signed an agreement actually in '99 with the Palestinian Authority. Uh, and it was granted oil and gas exploration rights uh, for for a 25-year period. And um, uh, this was essentially a contract between uh, three uh, partners, uh, British Gas, Consolidated Contractors, which is a Lebanese uh, company which is based in Greece, and uh, the Palestinian Authority. And so the Palestinian Authority not only was uh, was the shareholder of this uh, of this project, but it uh, it would also be receiving royalties from the production of this gas. So uh, essentially, uh, if the gas were to be marketed and sold, then the Palestinian Authority, the investment fund of the Palestinian Authority, would be getting revenues from this. Uh, what has happened uh, there again? We have to look at history, because um, right from the outset of Ariel Sharon's uh, uh, government in 2001, the sovereignty of these uh, gas fields by Palestine, Palestine sovereignty or or ownership of these gas fields, has been questioned by the government of Ariel Sharon. At one point, um, the ownership of these offshore gas fields was challenged by the Israeli Supreme Court. Uh, Sharon uh, stated um, unequivocally that Israel would not buy gas from Palestine, intimating that, in fact, these offshore reserves belong to Israel. And on the other hand, what was happening is that uh, the Israeli government was negotiating behind the scenes with, with British Gas, and British Gas was playing was playing a double game. It was talking to the Palestinians, 
negotiating with the Palestinians, and then it was negotiating with the Israelis. And essentially, how this thing evolved is very important because Israel decided in... um, Well, it decided essentially in 2006 to start negotiating directly with British gas. And uh, the objective was really to reach a deal whereby the gas from Gaza would be channeled by pipeline to the Israeli port of Ashkelon, and then it could be channeled for essentially domestic consumption. And um, they negotiated with British gas in 2006, and again in the subsequent year, the negotiations fell flat because essentially the Israelis insisted that the Hamas government and the Palestinian Authority would not get any royalties. That was really, I mean, Israel didn't, didn't own these concessions, They weren't party to the agreement with British Gas, but yet they appointed negotiators, the Israeli cabinet appointed negotiators, which uh, entered into discussions with British Gas, and they said, we will reach an agreement with you as long as the Palestinians don't get any money. And then they said, essentially they said, that the Palestinians should be paid in goods and services and insisted that no money should go to the Hamas-controlled government. That was a statement of Israeli defense authorities. So that there what you, what you saw emerging was, was an attempt by the Israeli government in cahoots with British gas, essentially, to, to nullify the contract signed in 1999 between the BG Group and the Palestinian Authority, at that time under Yasser Arafat, which gave the license to British Gas, but at the same time, where the whole contract would still be under the political authority of the Palestinians, and where the revenues would be shared according to that initial agreement. And really what the Israelis wanted to do in these negotiations was to bypass Hamas on the on the grounds that Hamas was an Islamic uh, government, okay? Uh, Not to recognize that Hamas's legitimacy as a government, as an elected government, and then use that as a pretext to renegotiate uh, this multi-billion dollar contract signed in 99, uh, which would then allow them to virtually uh, become de facto owners of those uh, offshore gas reserves. And uh, I suspect that that is part of the current agenda, is that the invasion plan, which in effect has been on the drawing board for several years, it was formulated in its active stage in in June of 2008. But in effect, this uh, invasion plan of Gaza has has been envisaged for quite some time. And I think the the objective is ultimately to redefine the territory and eventually also in the process of redefining the territory, also of establishing a new regime for the Palestinian gas fields. I suspect 
that we're going to we're going to see an attempt on the part of of Israel to confiscate those those gas fields and declare sovereignty over Gaza's maritime areas. As to whether that will succeed is another matter, but that I think is one of the objectives of this of this invasion. I'm speaking with economist and author Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Invasion of Gaza. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. This is a very important and strategic coastline uh, because it has extensive uh, gas reserves. Um, British gas estimates it at three billion, uh, something like three to four billion dollars worth, but it could be much larger. They don't normally um, reveal the actual size of those reserves in their public declarations. And if we look at at the coastline extending from uh, from Syria down to to Egypt, it's an area of tremendous uh, of tremendous wealth as far as the offshore gas reserves. Uh, Michel, could you describe the energy corridor that runs all the way from Turkey down to Egypt? That coastal corridor. How does that work with regard to energy supplies? Well, that's that's another aspect of energy geopolitics. Is that um, first of all, there's a project, a major oil and gas uh, pipeline which links the Caspian Sea to the Eastern Mediterranean. It's called the Baku. It's called the Baku Tbilisi Seyan pipeline. It runs from from the Caspian Sea port of of Baku, which is the capital of Azerbaijan, uh, through Georgia, the capital of Georgia, and then it goes right down to the to the Eastern Mediterranean, and uh, it bypasses Russian territory. It's uh, it's a consortium controlled by British Petroleum. It's called the BTC uh, pipeline, and um, where this this Caspian Sea pipeline becomes important is that Israel uh, is in the process of negotiating for a couple of years now a project with Turkey which would link the BTC pipeline uh, to its main pipeline which runs from uh, well, which runs from Ashkelon right down to the Red Sea port of Eilat. But in effect, I, I believe that this, would, that this pipeline would, in effect, integrate also the, the northern part of, of Israel, in other words, the port of Haifa. Um, what is important to, to bear in mind is the fact that if these two pipelines are integrated, this would mean that Caspian Sea oil would run Caspian Sea oil and gas would run from from the Seri port of of uh, Baku on on the Caspian Sea right down to Israel down to the port of Eilat on the Red Sea where it can then be exported back to Asia it sounds incredible but um I I understand that 
that Israel and Turkey uh, have signed that agreement. Initially, uh, that was before the war in Lebanon. They had pointed to the fact that they would be um, they would be doing this in terms of an underground, an underwater pipeline uh, in in the Eastern Mediterranean. But I think the longer term objective is, in fact, to militarize that entire coastline extending from Turkey down through Syria and Lebanon, uh, and of course the Gaza, the Gaza Strip as well, and and eventually you'd have a, a a corridor, a transport corridor, right up to uh, right from the Red Sea up to the to the Eastern Mediterranean, which would then link up with the BTC pipeline. One really has to look at a map to, to, to see the, the intricacies of this. But uh, what this means is that, that um, Israel is going to play a very major role um, because that's really a hub there in the eastern Mediterranean. It's going to play a very major role in protecting these pipeline corridors out of, um, of the Caspian Sea. Um, I should mention that Israel and Turkey have a long-standing uh, military and intelligence cooperation agreement. It's, uh, it's a very tightly knit uh, relationship. Uh, Turkey is, is, uh, is, of course, a member of NATO. It has one of the largest uh, capabilities um, uh, of NATO member countries, if, if, we, if we exclude, let's say, Britain, France, and and Germany, but Turkey is a, is a backbone of, of NATO in terms of conventional forces. And it has various, various uh, agreements with Israel on uh, intelligence sharing, um, military training, uh, so-called defense production, in other words, the production of weaponry, and so on, exchange of technology. And so uh, if you look, again, if one looks at the map, one one understands very clearly why there is an agreement with Turkey. The agreement with Turkey is really to establish the control by Israel of that eastern Mediterranean coastline. The corridor is uh, is uh, oil and gas on the one hand, but it's also water. It's water from Anatolia. It's 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 also water from the uh, you know, from Mesopotamia. Um, and so that uh, essentially, uh, I believe that that whole coastline extending up to Syria um, is a target for future military operations. The objective is to militarize that coastline. Um, it's interesting to note that in a... In a map which has been used for military training by the U.S. War Academy as well as by NATO, the Syrian coastline is uh, identified as a separate um, uh, entity. It, it's, in a sense, is sort of annexed to Lebanon so that Syria becomes landlocked and that whole coastline becomes a separate territory. I think that that is the objective. I'm not suggesting that this will necessarily occur, but but uh, Israel has has um, uh, certain 
territorial um, objectives. Uh, it wants to gain political control over Gaza to the extent that these gas reserves are completely under its jurisdiction. It wants to militarize the coastline so that it can control the the oil and gas pipelines, which link up with Turkey and the Baku Tbilisi Seyan pipeline. Um, so that is the underlying context of, and that's I think important when we assess um, what's happening in in um, in um, Gaza. We're very much, of course, concerned about the humanitarian crisis, but at the same time, it's very important that we understand that there are strategic and economic objectives behind those killings. Well, with regard to this uh, present attack on Gaza, a a massacre, really, Operation Cast-Led, what about the separation of Gaza from the West Bank, and then now the breaking apart of Gaza itself? I understand that uh, the Israeli military is dividing Gaza into two parts. Well, there have been some reports on that uh, on that division. I, it's not entirely clear. They're, I think they're cutting off um, they're cutting off um, Gaza City from from um, other parts of the territory. But I, I I'm not sure whether that is. I don't think that that's part of the the longer-term plan of, of subdividing the, the territory, it's, it's more of a... It, it has to do with the military operation per se. Um, so it, it's, it's not entirely clear uh, right now um, as to how they will um, reorganize um, the territory, the Gaza Strip, once this, uh, this military operation... Um, is completed, uh, and and whether they'll be able to. But I think that their objective will is to essentially, I think, to militarize the coastline. And then you've also mentioned perhaps another uh, ultimate objective of Operation Cast Lead ultimately would be expulsion. I guess absolutely. I I think that that is already occurring. Um, and um, you see, for instance, uh, Egypt, uh, until Egypt has kept the, the, the border closed, and, and uh, I'm sure that they are collaborating with the Israelis on that. And at one point, I think that that border is going to open up, and then you're going to get tens of thousands of people moving moving out. But uh, uh, the question is, where do they go? Um, because uh, uh, if they don't have, um, if there's no... Uh, possibility of, of um, giving them refuge in, in Egypt, uh, they, then they're, they're going to be uh, completely destitute, and, and we're going to have a situation which, which could be comparable to that of, of Central Africa. Um, they're already refugees, so they're fleeing. Where would they flee to? So I, I'm not, I, I think that this is a, well, this is a genocide. It they they may open the borders, but that doesn't mean necessarily that people will be able to flee to uh, to rebuild their lives somewhere else, uh, particularly uh, with a hostile with a hostile environment in Egypt. 
I'm speaking with economist and author Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Invasion of Gaza. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, Michelle, what do you know about the new type of weaponry that the Israelis are employing? I've read about something called dense inert metal explosive that involves some sort of a tungsten alloy, and that, of course, we're hearing daily reports about um, severe amputations of, of people who are hit by these things. Yeah, well, I've I've read the reports. I, I should mention that... Um, the weapons that they're using, I suspect, are the same ones that they used in the campaign in, in Lebanon, where for the first time uh, there were certain types of weapons which which had very unusual impacts in terms of um, the types of wounds that people were suffering, the, the burns, etc., a pretty awful situation. That was documented, actually, uh, I, I recall that it was documented by um, an Italian medical team in in Lebanon, and um, I suspect that these new and unknown deadly weapons used in Lebanon in in um, in July 2006 uh, are the same as the ones that were used in uh, in Gaza. Um, the descriptions, I mean, the reports at the time were uh, were so-called direct energy weapons and also using chemical and biological agents. The bodies, uh, there were, were macabre reports of, of uh, civilians with, uh, with damage to lower limbs, which required amputation. That we're getting those reports again. And... Um, there's also the the issue of the white phosphorus bombs which are which are essentially used to burn vast areas i mean people would be i presume would be burned alive in in those types of with those types of of weapons um yes those are weapons used i when i i mentioned lebanon because in fact uh, uh, we had a lot more information on Lebanon because of the the fact that that there were more there were many non governmental organizations which were which were there we had medical teams and and in in gaza we don't we we have very we don't have that kind of that ability to to examine what's actually going on in the conflict area. Well, then, uh, would you say that the main objective of Operation Cast Lead is to terrorize the civilians and get them to leave because the attacks are obviously being made, you know, on civilians? Yeah, these are attacks on civilians. And um, I think that uh, the attacks on civilians essentially is is there to to create those conditions. It's to preclude the possibility that people can actually organize themselves in in the form of a of a country or a political entity uh and and the way to do that is to kill people because then all the capabilities of the you know of of the society are, are destroyed i mean in in iraq um 
the United States occupation forces through their various paramilitaries were involved in targeted assassinations directed against scientists, uh, engineers, intellectuals, professionals. Um, essentially, it was to destroy the, the human resources of the country to foreclose the possibility that that country could rebuild itself and remain as a, as a, as a country, and, and then you destroy the historical memory and so on. I think they're doing it, well, it's much more advanced in, in Palestine than in Iraq, but uh, that is the way in which you destroy, uh, you destroy a nation. Uh, and, and it's interesting to note that they're not killing, they're not killing civilians in a in a sporadic fashion they they're killing civilians in universities schools hospitals uh you know th- these are the areas which are being are being targeted they're targeting they're targeting the institutions of civil society they they're destroying the institutional base the resources and the people and that is the way in which you destroy a country uh, now, uh, I assume that they're also trying to dismantle the security and military capabilities of Hamas because they still have to they still have to fight an urban warfare once they get there. So that that is another factor. But uh, it's interesting to note that that you have this targeted uh, bombings of of civilian infrastructure. It's nothing new. They did it in Yugoslavia. The NATO and the United States bombed. They, they systematically bombed hospitals, uh, schools, churches in Yugoslavia. In the year 2000, I, I was in Belgrade, and I actually visited the children's hospital there, and it, it was just incredible to see how, with, with these smart bombs, they managed to hit the they managed to hit the the power generation of the of the hospital, which then virtually meant that all the children had to be evacuated because they they didn't have any electricity. Okay, so that's the kind of thing that they do. Also in Yugoslavia, they they bombed the chemical the petrochemical plant, and uh, and they did it in such a way that they would hit the containers which had toxic chemicals. And they they use thermal detection to do it. Okay, so these techniques are being applied. It's 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 war to the nth degree. It's but it 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 is the killing of civilians, and it's the destruction of of the civilian economy, of uh, manufacturing, of agriculture. It's the contamination of water, the destruction of sewage systems, and so on. So there we are. You end your article on Operation Cast Lead saying, the broader question is whether Israel, in consultation with Washington, is intent upon triggering a wider war. Well, that is, of course, um, something which, which has been of concern to us for quite some time. The fact is that this kind of operation could easily escalate we already see that there have been some uh, attacks on Lebanon, uh, which have been reported. Um, there's always the, the accusation by the Israelis that Hamas is supported by Iran. 
they may wish to use this as a pretext. Uh, I mean, and yesterday, of course, I, I should uh, mention, yes, uh, they're firing rockets into Lebanon. Okay? Now, why would they fire rockets into Lebanon? Uh, that was that was uh, day before yesterday. Um, why would they do that? Um, is it not an act of provocation while they're at at war in in, in Gaza? Um, I'm just wondering whether this whole military operation is not part of of a broader agenda, which um, which includes the you know the the Lebanese-Syrian coastline, which is, of course, contiguous to Israel. And, uh, and we, have to, we have to understand that, that, uh, that there was a war in, in, in Lebanon in 2006, so that uh, this could be a prelude to, uh, to a broader conflict, quite definitely. And it could be a pretext. It could be a pretext to waging a broader war, and at the same time, it could it, it could also escalate because there's a there's a sense of tremendous indignation in the Arab world, and uh, and it's very you know difficult to predict what might happen in the next few months um, as far as uh, the actions which might be taken. Let's say. Within Lebanon or or Syria regarding this uh, regarding the military operation in uh, in in Gaza. Michel Chosadovsky, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. I've been speaking with Michel Chosadovsky. Today's show has been. The Invasion of Gaza. Michel Chosadovsky is a professor of economics and director of the Center for Research on Globalization. The Center for Research on Globalization is an independent research and media group of writers, scholars, and activists. Based in Montreal, the Global Research website at globalresearch.ca publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis on a broad range of issues focusing on social, economic, strategic, geopolitical, and environmental processes. Chosadovsky is the author of The Globalization of Poverty, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. Today we focused on two of his most recent articles, The Invasion of Gaza, Operation Cast Lead, part of a broader Israeli military intelligence agenda, and War and Natural Gas, the Israeli invasion and Gaza's offshore gas fields. Visit Michel Chosadovsky's website at www.globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, Call 510-848-6767, extension 628, or email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. Hey, hey. Yeah.
Are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what inside yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?